Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and culture. My name is Nicky and I am joined, as always, by the man who always gives me a cold carry when I'm exhausted and late. It's Greg. How are you today, Greg? Uh, I think better than than you've been (laughs) these last few days with your uh, malaise. I have been so ill this last few days like honestly so apologies listener if my voice sounds a little bit strange uh but yeah i have been really ill it's not the covid don't worry but i've had a a massive head cold genuinely it's wiped me out for a few days i I was in bed for three days straight just sleeping and reading and yeah it's knocked me out for six but i'm on the road to recovery I I feel a lot better. I thought to myself, you know what's going to really cure me is a hot toddy. It's a Scottish remedy. You know, whiskey, honey, lemon. Obviously, it solves all ill. So on Friday, I felt well enough to make my way to the shop. Because I didn't want to ask my wife, can you nip in and get me a half bottle of whiskey so I can make a hot toddy? I mean, I do have, I've got a lovely bottle of uh, 15-year-old Oban in the cupboard, but I'm not going to use that in a hot toddy. For a hot toddy, you need some something shite like grouse or bells. <laughs> not that I'm saying they're shite if they ever want to sponsor the podcast, but you need a kind of blended whiskey for the purposes of a hot yeah. toddy. So I, I went to the shop and a uh, half bottle of grouse and uh, the... The girl behind the counter did say to me, oh, well, you know, that's going to be nine euros, but you can get a 70 CL bottle for 12 euros at the moment because they're on offer. I was like, ah, fuck it. I'll get that then. Why not? It makes sense. Economically, of course it makes sense. So I, I bought that with the purpose of thinking I'll probably have like maybe two, three nips in hot toddies and... That'll be it, and then it'll sit in the cupboard until the next time one of us has a cold. Uh, Yeah, in the two days, I have tanned most of the bottle just through hot toddies, uh, which is is quite a remarkable thing to do. But on the upside, I feel a hell of a lot better now than I did before. I bet you've been sleeping like a baby with all that whiskey. Oh, I've had beautiful sleeps the last couple of days. In fact, yesterday I woke up and I thought, am I feeling better? But I think it was just a bit of a whiskey hangover initially because once the time it got to about midday, I felt so much better. And then at four o'clock, I was like, right, I'll sit down and watch the Aberdeen game. And normally I would have a beer or you know, a glass of wine or something watching the football. And I thought, well... I've been sick, so I can't have a beer, really. I'll have a hot toddy. And then that progressed into like about six hot toddies throughout the evening. Anyway, I'm feeling better. I don't look better. As we've started recording this and I'm looking at myself on Zoom, I am very horrified by how I look, but never mind. Uh, So yeah, that's me. How about yourself? How's everything been, Greg? Good, good. I mean, I I, I like the idea of a Scottish superhero and his origin is he catches the cold and so he starts drinking a lot of hot toddies to the point where he becomes like immune to the common cold virus um, and all the honey makes him like hard and healthy as fuck. You know what I mean? And he just runs around solving crimes, um, not catching the cold, but catching criminals. So you're talking like kind of banana man, but hot toddy yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't catch the cold, but he catches criminals like that, you know? Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Let's pitch that to Marvel and DC yeah. uh, next time we get a chance. I'll, yeah? tweet, um, I'll tweet celebrated Scottish comic book writer Mark Miller 
uh, of Coatbridge and see what he thinks we can do anything with it. Um, yeah, for me, I mean, I'm in, I'm in good health. I'm sure our listeners will be relieved to know. I've had my sister uh, over visiting me this week uh, with my new nephew. I was meeting him for the first time because he was born uh, on Boxing Day last year. And obviously with the pandemic and whatnot, we've not seen each other for a really long time. Um, so, you know, it's been nice having a little baby around. But my kids are obviously, you know, as we've mentioned before, they're older. Like my oldest daughter's 13. Uh, my younger daughter will be 11 in a few weeks and you kind of forget how much hard work babies are because like a, a like a, a nine month old baby needs constant attention now I can obviously remember when my daughters were that age so whenever he was a wee bit fractious because obviously babies can't tell you what's wrong you got to, you know you got to sort of eliminate what the cause of their kind of whinging might be or crying might be. So on Tuesday afternoon, we had been down to the beach in the morning before it got too hot, uh, went for some lunch, came back. It was a bit out of sorts and, you know, my sister's a new mother and my brother-in-law's a new father. And because I have that kind of muscle memory of when my kids are little, I'm like, right, I should try and help out here. So I'm suggesting things and stuff and he's getting a bit more upset. And then I just thought, wait a minute, he's not my baby. I can just get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so... I went. I went up to my. I went, up, went up to my bedroom. I closed the door. I lay in the bed. I read my book uh, and had a lovely little nap. I came down the stairs again about two hours later. Everything was sorted. Baby was sleeping. Um, and I, one of my friends uh, who had came over with his son. His son's only two. He, and he had met my nephew. He said, "Do you not miss? Do you not miss like when the girls were that age?" And I was like. I sort of miss, like, the kind of two- and three-year-old Macy Monet, but I don't miss all the baby admin, or the life admin. It's just, you know, I mean, yeah, it doesn't last forever, but it's good when it's finished. They can start, like, brushing their own teeth and wiping their own arse and telling you what the problem is, rather than you having to fucking <laughs> deduce it by the process of elimination. But no, it was nice having them here. It was their first time in Dubai and uh, the weather's getting to that good spot now, so yeah, it was good. Nice little week. Fantastic. Well... I guess that's illnesses and baby trauma out the way for the week. The other thing that, um, just before we got the news, the other thing that I found out this week, you know, I know that you're a fan of uh, uh, Pearl Jam. Um, this, mm. this, the song Jeremy, I found out this week that I have been singing the entirely wrong words to the chorus for 30 years. Now, why? What did you think you'd been singing? So I thought it was Jeremy... Spoke and saved to save the day. Jeremy spoken, saved the day. Because, like, in my defence, Eddie, no, v- Eddie Vedder's not the most, uh, what's the word, sort of, you know, he's, I don't know. Anyway, go on. <laughs> he doesn't enunciate very yeah. well. Is it not Jeremy spoke in class today? That is the correct uh, words to the chorus. Uh, and the only reason I found out <laughs> is because, uh, if you play your Apple Music on Apple TV, some of the songs bring up the lyrics on the screen. And um, yeah, I was uh, I was more surprised to find out I've been getting that wrong all this time. Or you just listen to the song and it's quite easy. <laughs> Jeremy spoke in class yeah. today. It, it is once, you, once you've kind of seen it, but I always say, Jeremy Spoken, say, blah, Anyway, so it sings in the club style, like Vic Reeves used to do on Shooting Stars. How does how does he save the day, well, though? I don't know. He, I mean, the whole song's he, a bit he weird. He doesn't save the day. Yeah. Well, he spoke in class today. He didn't save the day at all. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just, well, I think, you know, it's, it, every day's a school day, right? Right, whatever. <laughs> right, let's move on to the news. Cue the jingle. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Okay, Greg. Now, we have not, despite our pleas to the audience, we have not had any emails about the question we put out a couple of episodes ago about how people submitted pornographic photos of their wives to magazines in the 80s. So, I have taken it upon myself to do some research into this topic, and I have found some information here. So, I have found a copy of Reader's Wives from the, the mid-80s, and um, this particular um, uh, copy has a, a woman called Lane from Cardiff, and um, it, it does say at the bottom, uh, so get them out and get flashing, your cameras that is, send colour prints, Polaroids, or transparencies to Department KW, Galaxy Publications, PO Box 369, Malden, Essex, CM9, 3TY. That's for anyone that's still interested in sending prints, Polaroids, or transparencies to this address. And they will give you £20 for each wow. picture. Um, and it does say, to be fair, um, if, uh, if they are too OTT, they will send the pictures back. So I don't know what that means to OTT. Oops. So a transparency then, I'm assuming, is a negative, right? Uh, yeah, I presume so. So you could send either a photo, a Polaroid, or a negative into uh, Fiesta, Reader's Wives, so, whatever, so, and, and they would sort so out. So you would have to go... If you didn't if you didn't have a Polaroid camera... And uh, now my, my grandfather had a Polaroid camera, and as I recall, like those old Polaroid cameras, they wouldn't they produce a very good photograph. They were often a wee bit blurry or whatever, so if you wanted like a good quality print, you would have to like, take your film down to Boots or Super Snaps or Jessops yeah. or somewhere. And I think... Now, I, I did a photography module at college, at Aberdeen College, as part of my HND, and... You know, when you were, this was back in the 90s, like kind of pre-digital, so you looked at every photo you developed as you developed. Because every photo, you know, you have to sort of wash out the film and then, you know, project it onto the paper and stuff. So somebody in your, somebody in your local, like, Photoshop is going to see either your wife or unless you are, you're in some, the something for the ladies page or see you. So someone's got to go and collect those photographs, which would be mortifying. But then I suppose yeah. if you're prepared to put yourself in a, a widely selling pornographic magazine, you're maybe not bothered if like Doris done it. Jessup sees your naked wife and your naked body in photographs. Well, that was the whole thing that led to the discussion that we were saying, yeah. did you go down to Boots and get them developed or your local snappy snaps or did you develop them at home? Right, Greg. So uh, what have you seen in Scotland this week uh, that has interested you and has caught your attention? I mean, this week has been quite dire in terms of there's been a raise of, of spikings and tonics have been blacklisted by LGBT community as well. So let's have a look at some fun stuff. What have you seen in the news that's caught you? Well, eye? these two young Aberdonians um, definitely having fun. This comes from the Daily Record. The headline is Numpty Youths Pictured Hitching Lift Back of Moving Bus Busy Scots City Centre. <laughs> Angry locals and first bus have hit out at the kids after they clung on to the vehicle as it was turning in Aberdeen City Centre. Uh, I can t I can exclusively, well, not exclusively reveal, because it's in a daily record, but um, 
the corner in question is they're turning <laughs> from George Street onto St Andrews Street, um, just in front of the former John Lewis building. The bus, if anyone's interested, was the 19C service. Uh, the incident happened during busy rush hour at 6 o'clock on Friday. Uh, this Friday just gone. A resident took... This is this is the bit that made me laugh. I mean, obviously, it made, it made me laugh that these kids had the, the audacity to, <laughs> to jump in the back of a bus, a, a double-decker bus. Um, but this is what made me laugh. A resident took to local Facebook page, Food bar news to raise the alarm. I'm not sure. If you want to raise the alarm, I'm not sure Facebook is a place to do it. Uh, in a post, they posted the picture with the caption, 10 minutes ago in town. Feel sorry for bus drivers and responsibility they carry because of silly teenagers. Now, to be fair to the bus driver, if two dafties jump in the back of his bus and they're hanging off the back and he can't see them and something happens to them, pretty sure that's not his responsibility. Um, the, no. Of course um, as you can imagine, the post generated a lot of engagement with over 1,500 reactions and nearly a 1,000 comments. Many locals were quick to criticise the youths, but others were more understanding, insisting no harm was done. In the comments, one woman said, absolutely crazy, feel sorry for the drivers. So basically, these kids are doing a bit of a Bob Hoskins and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, he jumps in the back of the trolley car with the kids rather than paying for a ticket. Bob's a grizzled investigator whose name Mike uh, Valiant. Eddie Valiant. That's, the, that's his name, isn't it? Roger Rabbit. Uh, see, my go-to was Marty McFly in Back uh, to the Future yeah. on the skateboard. But I guess he has a skateboard, whereas these kids didn't. They're just hitching a ride on the back of the... They look like they're standing on the tow bar. <laughs> well... No harm done, really. I mean, did anyone die? Uh, no, not so far. Um, well, I, was anyone injured? No. I wonder where they jumped on, though. Because, you know, did they jump on at the top of George Street and just, you know, get a little, get a huddle down? Because that bus would have had to have, would have to have had stopped at a couple of sets of traffic lights on its way down George before it got to yeah. St Andrew's Street corner. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious. As to, I mean, they probably jumped on at the traffic lights. For a laugh. I don't think they were like yeah. catching a lift or trying to dodge the fare. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You ever jumped in the back of a bus? No, I can honestly say I've never jumped on the back of a bus. What about yourself? Have you ever given that a go? I don't think I've jumped in the back of any moving vehicle. I have ridden in the boot of a car a couple of times. Yeah, I've done that. Um, which I, I thought was funny. Like, I was maybe a bit pissed and there was too many of us to fit in the car and I'm like, I'll get in the boot. And it's not until the next day you're thinking, if someone had smashed into the back of that car yeah. by accident, then I'd probably be a goner. But at the time, it was funny. And <laughs> yeah. it's probably more comfortable than squeezing in the back with four people. So it was all right. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've done that a couple of... I mean, something that I've done a couple of times is I've jumped in the back of a works fan. You know, if there's been... Because works fans obviously only have a couple of seats. So I've volunteered a couple of yeah. times to do that. But because, like, there's no windows and you can't see out, every time I've done it, I feel myself feeling a bit sick because I can't see where I'm going. So there's obviously no seat belt, you know, lying on top of a toolbox <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I remember the, the first time that I saw Back to the Future because Marty McFly does make it look very easy, doesn't he? The way he just kind of hitches oh, yeah. a, wee, a yeah. wee toe in the back of the pickup truck and whatnot. I mean, the first time I saw that, I think, it was probably the, the coolest thing I'd ever seen anybody do on a film. And I and I did I did sometimes think about trying it, but I remember my dad kinda of warning me against it after the movie when I was saying, Oh, it's 
I guess something like, oh, how cool was it when he was uh, hanging in the back of the truck on his skateboard? And my dad's saying, yeah, there's no way he could do that. These these cars go too fast. He'd have fallen off and hurt himself. Yeah, that, and that, knowing how I, I functioned in those days, I probably thought, right, well, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably for the best. Yeah. Anyway, yep. That's my first story this week. What's your, uh, what have you found in the news? Uh, well, I also have a bus story for us this week. And I have a story from the Daily Record this week. And it's a Motherwell bus driver who ploughed into a low bridge in Wishaw forgot he was at the wheel of a double-decker bus. Uh, <laughs> Keith Rives was fined £490. That's a very strange yeah. amount. Uh, after admitting to driving carelessly in the town on the uh, 17th of August last year, the 60-year-old told the court, I thought I was driving a single-decker. Unfortunately, it was a double-decker. It was a momentary lapse in concentration. I didn't normally drive double-deckers. He'd been furloughed due to the uh, coronavirus situation when he went back to work. Single-deckers had been replaced by double-deckers due to passenger capacity. Uh, Unfortunately for Keith, he'd forgotten he was driving a double-decker. There was one passenger hurt in the collision, but luckily nobody was sitting upstairs. Uh, The sheriff put eight penalty points on his license, but cleared him of any more serious charges of dangerous driving. So the double-decker bus hit a railway bridge. Uh, It was driving from Glasgow to Overton, uh, and one female passenger suffered a bloody nose. Uh, Giving evidence at court, the, the, the defendant admitted that there was a clear height restriction notice on the bridge, but it said that a single decker bus would pass safely under it. And of course, he thought he was driving a single decker bus. Now, there's a photo of this, and the top of the bus has come clean off as he's driven <laughs> under it. So it must have been going quite a pelt to come off you know it's a not it's a film that you see like a double decker bus going under a, a low bridge and like the top comes clean off i can't think it's maybe happened in a few films is it a born film maybe or, or something film, but maybe yeah. it, it, is that what you said maybe but it looks it looks pretty much like that the prosecutor said uh, it's unacceptable to simply forget the size of your bus thereby putting passengers in danger. Uh, But the sheriff said he wasn't satisfied that the driving fell into the dangerous category. So he has been suspended, unfortunately, after the crash. Um, And he did say the collision was a bad experience, but hopefully it doesn't limit him resuming his driving career. So yeah, have you ever misjudged a, a bridge or anything? Or gone under a... I mean, it does happen sometimes. I, I've been maybe in a, a bus and it's going under a low bridge and you're thinking, oh Jesus, mm. is, that, is it going to fit? But of course it does because the bus driver knows that he's... Under that bus. That bridge. Driving a double-decker bus. I mean, come on. He forgot he was driving a double-decker. Like, how do you forget? You've pretty sure you would realise that you're driving a big bus. If, if I can be devil's advocate for a second and give me the benefit of the doubt, why did it take him so long to realise after the top deck of the bus connected with the bridge? You would think as soon as you heard that first sickening crunch, you'd be like, oh fuck, you wouldn't keep going and then realise once the top of the bus was almost no. sheared off. That is a very valid yeah. point, actually. Yeah. Do you remember the absolute pandemonium in Aberdeen when the Bendy bus debuted. I do. It was quite exciting. My yeah. First, my first yeah, it was. And you were excited. Yeah. 
My first trip in a bendy bus. You wanted to get on the bendy bus, and the bendy bus was exciting. For the, anyone that's unaware, the bendy bus was a, a big thing in Aberdeen, and it was effectively two single-decker buses kind of melded together with this kind of concertina thing in the middle. Yeah. So it was like a it was like a massive long bus. It was two buses held together with this kind of concertina. With like a bit of, with like a bit, a bit of washing machine pipe or something like that. Yeah, basically, uh, yeah. But yeah, it was amazing. I think I was only on it once, um, and that was on the way back from a Radiohead concert at the Exhibition Centre. Yeah. No, I was on it a couple of times, especially when I would, if I was coming in, when I was at um, the Gordon Centre in my first year of college, I would often get oh. the bus uh, from Bridget on into uh, the city centre. So I was on it a few times. I mean, yeah, the old bendy bus. I wonder why it never caught on. I think the the streets in Aberdeen, because obviously the the sort of the city centre streets of Aberdeen are hundreds of years old and not designed for like like fifty like twenty five meter long um, conveyances with yeah. like a, a hinge in the middle. You know, maybe that's why. Yeah, thinking about. Uh, a lot of the the streets of where I lived and the surrounding areas, the bendy bus just wouldn't fit. Yeah, yeah. And a, a lot of it, like the the terminus, as they were called, kind of the the way the bus would circulate, it just it wouldn't fit. So I I don't think it was really it didn't work in terms of most of Aberdeen, which is probably why it was just on that bridge of Don to city centre yeah. route. Um, now the the corner uh, that are two um, bus. Riders were photographed on that. There's a bus stop because if you remember, I used to go out with a girl who lived right next to that bus stop in St Andrews Street. Um, mm. So, so yeah. the bendy bus, if it was coming round that corner and it had to stop at the bus stop, there's a good chance that the back half of the bus would still be on George Street <laughs> or at a kind of angle blocking the traffic coming up St Andrews Street from the other side. So maybe that's why, maybe the, maybe the, maybe that's why the bendy bus never took off in Aberdeen. I feel like I've seen it in other cities as well. I'm sure they had bendy buses in Glasgow. To, but to your point, ah, probably to your point. I thought it's been a long time since I've seen. So yeah, well, I don't know. Well, it's been a long time since I've been in Aberdeen, yeah. like in terms of being on a bus. But yeah, I don't remember. But I just remember the absolute pandemonium of when this bendy bus came yeah. out. It was just like it. It was the greatest thing in the world ever that had happened to Aberdeen. We had a bus that had a bend in. Everybody was just was just getting over the shock of uh, designated bus lanes in the city centre that you could ride your bike in. And then this bendy bus comes along and just blows everyone's minds. <laughs> I don't even know if bus lanes were a thing when the bendy bus came in. It was just like, I don't know, it was like New Coke. You know, rem- it was just the, the bendy buses here. I, I remember outrage in Aberdeen when the bus lanes were uh, were introduced. I, I mean, the thing is, and now I don't want to speak ill of anybody from Aberdeen because I lived there for a long time and I really like living there and I know a lot, a lot of good friends including your good self. The people of Aberdeen do have a bit of a habit of rallying against any proposed changes. You know, like, I remember... Well, we don't like change. We don't like change. I remember when they were when there was talks to pull down St Nicholas House on Broad Street next to the Bon Accord set, well, next to the illicit still pub and um, or near it and um, everybody in Aberdeen agreed that the building was hideous but what they didn't want was another modern building going in its place 
Like, well, what what else could you have if you're going to have a building there? Something's got to be built, unless you're going to go back in time and transport an old building brick by brick into the 21st century to build it on Broad Street. You're going to have a modern building. Um, you know, they're a, they're a, they're a funny bunch. So they are. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. You're saying that Aberdeen people don't like change and they're stuck in the past as I sit recording this podcast in my 1983 Aberdeen home strip. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, uh, what else have you seen in the news this week, Greg? Well, I, I feel like this next story may spark outrage amongst fans of um, <gasps> social justice. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of along the lines of the, well, maybe a wee bit along the lines of the the JJT, um, no, sorry, the JJE from uh, last, uh, the last <laughs> episode of the podcast. It comes from the Falkirk Herald um, on Wednesday, the 20th of October, uh, 2021. Um, the headline reads, Karen, which is an area near Falkirk, Karen Welder broke man's jaw after being threatened with knife. A welder was fined more than £2,300 after breaking the jaw of a man who pulled a knife on him. I can already sense a bit of outrage, particularly amongst our North American listeners. Neil O'Brien, 24, had gone to meet the knife man over trouble he had been causing a friend. Falkirk Sheriff Court was told last Tuesday. The court heard that an argument had ensued over the phone between O'Brien and the man, one Gavin Christie, over a suspicion that Mr Christie had been bombarding his ex-partner, who happens to be a friend of Mr O'Brien's, with calls from a withheld number. The prosecutor Cheryl Clark said, Mr Christie told the accused he wasn't scared and much like Tom Petty, he wouldn't back down. She didn't say Tom Petty, I just added that little <laughs> flourish in there. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> O'Brien suggested that they should meet at the Karen Co-op um, to discuss things further. I'm not sure that a convenience store um, is the right place to hold peace talks. O'Brien then turned up with a third man at the co-op and he chatted with Mr Christie for a few minutes. Uh, Miss Clark said it was agreed that nobody wanted any trouble, but the situation then escalated. Mr Christie pulled out a kitchen knife he had brought with him and told O'Brien and the third man to stay away from him. Miss Clark said he was told not to be so stupid with the knife, resulting in him apparently throwing the knife away behind a bush. O'Brien then said, you think you're a hard man bringing a knife? And there was a physical altercation resulting in Mr Christie being punched. And he was then assaulted by O'Brien. O'Brien was arrested and told police that he had retaliated by punching Mr Christie, claiming that Mr Christie had gone for him. After being cautioned and charged, he said, I think it was only self-defence, not an assault, considering he had a knife. (laughs) Mr Christie suffered several fractures to his jaw, which had to be surgically repaired with three separate metal plates. Um, O'Brien of Karen pleaded guilty to assaulting Mr Christie under provocation and to his severe injury. The incident occurred in the early hours of December the 13th, uh, 2020 near the co-op at Karen Retail Park. Solicitor Simon Hutchinson defending said that despite his young years, O'Brien had a good job earning £40,000 a year, owned his own house and could pay a fine. So Sherrick Derek Hamilton fined the first offender £2,325. He said, I take into account the circumstance you found yourself in, but clearly this was still a serious assault, so I can I sense your outrage coming over the, the interwebs. Oh, wow. Well, that is quite a tale. I mean, why is the kitchen knife the kind of go-to weapon? Is it because it's just what you have it's handy? It's convenient, isn't it? It's just, it's usually you've got a bread knife or a... Um, Vegetable peeler hanging about the house, 
stick it down your the front of your tracks I mean, bottoms. I guess it's it's the weapon of choice for Michael Myers, so yeah. why shouldn't it be the weapon of choice for um Fatboy Slim or for <laughs> Fatboy Slim? Any other kind of uh well, weapon of oh, choice. Oh yes. Uh, Fatboy yeah. Slim, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is, no. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does seem a bit of a, a strange kind of, of tale that you've just told us there. Um bit of a an odd kind of altercation going on. I'm not a fan of violence. Um but that said, I've got a lot of time for people. I, I like it when somebody is being threatened by somebody else and the person doing the threatening probably thinks that the person they're threatening is, you know, a pushover or whatever. Maybe they're trying to mug yeah. him or something. And then it turns out that the person they're threatening is, in fact, hard as a coffin nail and retaliates yeah. with uh, extreme prejudice, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah, you love to see that. You do see those clips, obviously, on the social media in terms of, like, people bullying a kid and then it turns out the kid's like a black belt in Kung yeah. Fu and just absolutely nails the guy that's bullying him. And that's the kind of thing you absolutely love to see. And yeah, I guess this story is the same. It, it's, it, it is the case that you do want to see people fighting back and kind of, it, it's very funny and yeah, it kind of makes it all the more lighter when you hear about something like this. I, I, I did hear a funny story along the same lines um, today about uh, an ex-Welsh, not professional rugby player, but like a Welsh rugby player who someone tried to mug him when he was taking money out of a cash machine. And he uh, he turned and he pulled the guy's T-shirt over his head, like ice hockey player style, gave him a couple of digs, you know, gave him a, f- a few digs so he fell over. And then um, the guy, all the guy's change fell out his pockets fell into the road. So the guy was getting up and he's obviously a, a, a bit distraught and all that and the extra players, the, the adrenaline's calming down and he's like, look, are you all right? And the guy said, oh, I've, I've lost my... Um I've lost my bus fare. Like, all my coins fell out of my pocket and they've gone down, like, the drain and things. <laughs> he's like, oh, he said, how much is your bus fare? And he's like, oh, like, 120. So they probably play end up giving him two quid to get the bus home. <laughs> oh, what a happy ending then. Oh, that's nice. I like to hear that. Oh, very good. Anyway, what's your uh, what's your next story? Well, this fits in quite well with uh, our topic that we're going to be discussing later on in the podcast. So this is from the Daily Record this week, and it's from Air. Um, a young team, and young team is in inverted commas, obviously meaning a young gang, have been spotted riding a stolen JCB steamroller through Air uh, with police probing a launching a probe into the instant. I don't know if you saw the clip. This did go quite viral on social media. And it's this basically young guys just riding a steamroller through this fucking Ayrshire estate, chanting loudly. So uh, the footage online shows a gang of youths chanting loudly and driving the JCB steamroller through Wallace Town in Ayr at 10.30pm on Wednesday, October the 13th. In the clip, the youngsters can be seen sat and standing on top of the machinery as they roll through the housing estate. The group was driving along Whitlitz Road and a report was made to the police. Uh, The roller was last traced on Russell Drive and an investigation has been launched by officers. Police now say that the roller has been returned to the owner, so we're very glad to hear that the roller 
is back where it should be. So yeah, uh, basically a young team stole a JCB steamroller, drove it through their housing estate, and as I say, we can. I'll see if I can get this clip and put it up on our Instagram. They're literally driving it through an estate chanting football songs <laughs> as, they, as they're driving it through and there's people looking out their windows cheering at them and then they've just ditched it um but yeah brilliant i mean have you ever you never stolen a steamroller no, have you no i've never done that i never i've, I've never stolen a con- any sort of motorized conveyance a fair play to them i don't know how they got it started i mean i can only imagine the keys were left in it yeah. or i don't know Keys to a steamroller, so. or is it just a button press? You couldn't hotwire a steamroller, so I'd imagine... I'm pretty sure those boys couldn't hotwire a steamroller. Um, <laughs> no, I mean it's it's a it's a combustion engine. It's going to be it's going to need an ignition. So yeah, there'll be keys in it for sure. For s- yeah. So it, it's it's more the fault of the the person that's left the keys in or beside the steamroller rather it, than the guy. Oh, come on, is it though? You know, oh, oh, come on! I I guarantee you, if I was like. 13, 14 years old and walking, you know, as you did at the time, you would walk around town kind of or like around the neighbourhood on a Friday, Saturday evening, just kind of looking for something to do. You would end up at the park. You just you were just hanging out. You weren't doing any trouble. But if you walk past a steamroller and you saw the keys were in it, you're going to be thinking, let's start it up. <laughs> let's have a go. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll just drive down to the end of the street. And then once you've done that, you're like, oh, fuck it. Let's let's go through the house and estate. Come on. Are you telling me you wouldn't? Uh, I mean, I've, I've never been in the in this situation. It's like temptation has never been put in front of me as a as a youth. I'm just imagining the young Nicky and his cohorts. Oh, look, guys left the keys in that steamroller. Mum will have a go. So you'd <sighs> chugging along in it, stopped by a police officer. What the fuck do you boys think you're doing? Yeah, but the keys were left in it. Aye, all right, fair enough, boys. Just take it back, eh? No harm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that, but I, I genuinely think if, yeah, if I'd been 13, 14 and I was out with my friends and we'd seen keys left in a steamroller, I, I think we would have started it up and taken it for a drive. Well, look, that's about right. When you and I were in our early 20s, if we were walking up, if we were walking like up George Street or something <laughs> on, the, on the way to the pie shop and we came across a steamroller with the keys in it, we'd be driving the steamroller up to the pie shop and then... Maybe all the way home. <laughs> yeah, I can actually guarantee that would have happened, yes. <laughs> You're yeah. right. Forget 13, 14, early 20s. Fuck's sake, we're in our early 40s. We'll probably still do the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we were back in Aberdeen next year and were pished walking home and we saw a steamroller with the keys in the ignition, and let's face it, probably be the two of us and maybe our mutual yeah. friend. In fact, probably be the two of us. Our mutual friend would have probably gone home early. I, I think even now, as early 40s gentlemen if we were walking home pished let, let's say we were staying where we stayed last time we were back in Aberdeen right that that flat at the end of uh, Holborn yeah. Street if we were if we got to like the top end of Holborn Street and we saw a steamroller and we've got our chips and pie supper and stuff and iron brew and then if there was a steamroller sitting there and the keys were in it would we not be like oh, fuck it let's just take this home I mean the amount of the I got so sick 
of making that journey from like the top <laughs> the uh, the corner of Union Street and Holborn Street down to that that flat, it would not have taken much encouragement, I don't think, to do it. I mean, I mean that that's the issue, you know. That like you mentioned, yeah, we are gentlemen in the early forties. Hopefully, we're quite mature. We've made the right choices. But the problem is, all it takes is getting together in person and a few beers, not necessarily that many beers, <laughs> and we just regress back to the early 20s dafties in every conceivable way almost <clears throat> good times ah good times good times right we're going to be looking out for a steamroller next time we're in Aberd. have you got anything else that you've seen this week uh, no i've exhausted all my news for this week no. no okay uh the only other thing that i had was have you seen that uh still game has had a massive uptake in netflix in the last week. I haven't, no, I didn't see this story. Yeah, because people are searching for Squid Game and they are getting Still Game. And people have been watching Still Game thinking that it's that it's Squid Game. Right. Uh, Squid Game, if you're listening to this, I still haven't watched it yet, no. but my wife has. Yeah, people have been searching for Squid Game and have been unfortunately coming up with Bobby the Barman and Naveed instead. So there you go. Still Game has had a massive uptake in viewership in the last couple of weeks. Right. Well, uh, I guess that concludes the news for this week. Uh, let's have a little word from our sponsors. I'd like to tell you about Bank of Scotland's Super Saver accounts. For under-7s, there's a money box kit, a Super Squirrel poster, a badge. For over-7s, there's a management folder with a membership card, notepad and pen, a colour magazine and a deposit account book. To make savings grow, we've a super high interest rate and there's lots of new friends to meet at Bank of Scotland. A friend for life. Okay, so it was your choice this week, Greg. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about on this swally this week? Okay, doke. Well, I've got I found three introductions um, to tonight's today's uh, movie. I chose, I chose a movie this week. So the first one is quite vague. It reads it's IMDb's introduction to this film, and it says encompassed by violent street gangs. Neglectful parents, bullying teachers, and a dearth. You don't, you don't hear a lot of dearth these days. A dearth of positive role models. A studious but emotionally abandoned kid turns thug. Uh, Wikipedia says the movie is Ned's. Um, can I give it away? I kind of have to give it away now. Ned's, also known as non-educated delinquents, stylized as Ned's, is a 2010 coming-of-age drama film directed and written by Peter Mullen. Set in Scotland, the film centres on John McGill, played by Connor McCarran, a teenager growing up in 1970s Glasgow. John's story follows his involvement with the city's youth culture, his impact on his development as a teenager, and the back of the... DVD box says from acclaimed director Peter Mullen comes Ned's the story of a young man's journey from prize winning schoolboy to knife carrying teenager John McGill an amazing performance from newcomer Conor McCarran struggles with the low expectations of those around him and events take a maddening turn as he descends into shock and violence on a seemingly one-man mission of self-destruction. So I think, obviously, the back of the DVD box has been written by a skilled marketing uh, person, um, whereas the Wikipedia entry and the IMDb entry is probably written by somebody like me. So, uh, so yeah, so yeah, this week's movie is uh, Ned's, our second movie by Peter Mullen, um, after we did Orphans way, way back last year. The episode's still available. Uh, yeah, this isn't the first time you've seen Ned's. 
is it? No, I I was very aware of this film when it first came out. I don't want to sound like a, a broken record, but I was living in the Middle East when this film would have come out. But I was aware of it because I listened every week to the Mark Commode and Simon Mayo BBC podcast where they would review films. And they had Peter Mullen on uh, one week to discuss Ned's and they reviewed it the the following week. So I was aware of the film. Uh, Unsurprisingly, it didn't come out in the cinemas in Dubai. So I had to wait for it to come out on DVD, which meant I could download it from let's be honest streaming services weren't available at that time so I did download it from the Bay of Pirates and yeah I I watched it when it it first came out and I remember really enjoying the film but I, I don't think it left a huge mark on me and it was the only time I'd watched it up until this week when I rewatched it for the podcast and I have to say watching it again the second time it made a much bigger mark on me this time and yeah I I was genuinely blown away by this film of of the the impact that it kind of had on me and the the depth and how good a film this this really is and it shouldn't come as a surprise because it's a Peter Mullen Mm. film I mean he's only directed what three films really and there's only there's only two we can review on the Swally because technically the other one is the Magdalene Sisters which is an Irish film so I, I, I don't think we can allow that but yeah it's this this film is incredible, so I, I really enjoyed it. But uh, what about yourself? What's what's your first kind of memories of of Ned's? I think you were quite early on board with this, weren't you? I my anticipation for this film came when it was coming out was high. Um, unfortunately, when it came out, I had a, my daughter was only one in a one in a bit, and my wife was pregnant with her second daughter. So opportunities to go to the cinema uh, just just weren't there really I had to wait until it came out on DVD yeah I mean I've seen it a few times um, normally if we do some, when we do something for the Swally I'll watch I'll try I'll try my hardest to watch it twice um, but with this one I only kind of had to watch it once and it, it didn't feel like it's been that long since the last time I watched it although I couldn't tell you exactly when that was but you know every time I've seen it I've really enjoyed it you know they, I think mm. Peter Mullen's very good at getting um, very natural performance out of you know kind of young actors or amateur actors you know I mean I think about orphans like the the girl who plays Rosemary and stuff and the little kids that are in orphans like the wee girl that uh, takes Rosemary in when she gets lost you know he's I I watched an interview with him about this film and he was being asked because all the all the young guys and girls in the movie are there were certainly kind of unknowns when the movie came out unfortunately none of them really have sort of set the the world of theatre or cinema alight and you know the adult cast you've got Stephen McCullough in there you've got um, Peter Mullen uh, in in there as well you've got um, what's the actor's name who plays Malky in the scene at the club, I can't, I can't remember his name, but he's he's in uh, My Name Is Joe and loads and loads of Scottish things. Um, so they, you know they're all quite accomplished actors. But he was talking about how he got the performance out of these guys and girls. And he's like, look, you know, I don't. He said when you're directing kids, like young people, like these, their tendency is to want to act, and really, you know, I, I don't want them to try and act. I want them to sort of feel it, and and you know, however he sort of manages. Uh, his cast and his set and everything. I mean, the the young guy um, Connor McCarran who plays um, the older John. 
you know, like it's a bit like uh, Red Road. Um, he's in like every scene. You know, he's in the apart from the apart yeah. from the very beginning when another actor, like a young actor, playing mm. him as a young boy. He's, he's in every scene. He, you know, he doesn't really say an awful lot in the course of the film. You know, there's there's not there's not a lot of dialogue from him. Really, like you know, when he's around the other the other members of the gang and stuff, and when he's in the classroom, I mean, I think the the only scene where he has quite a lot of lines is the kind of it's a sort of turning point for the movie when he's at odds with the Latin teacher. But the rest of the film, you know, a lot of it is him reacting to what's going on, and he's very good at uh, he's a very good physical actor, you know, at sort of conveying how the character's feeling. And, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and Peter Mullen just gets an absolutely superb performance out of you know, considering he'd never really acted before. I think I think out in his IMDb, I think he had like a, a short uh, on his uh, resume before he did Ned's. But it's it's astonishing. Yeah, I watched an interview with Peter Mullen and the actor uh, who uh, Connor McCarran who plays John and. It was literally, Peter Mullen put an advert in the newspaper in Glasgow looking for, I think it said, like kids to be 16 and over, boys and girls just come along to this kind of workshop for a film that we're producing. And it was Connor's dad's friend who saw the advert in the paper and gave the paper to his dad who then gave it to Connor and he went along to this workshop and in the interview I saw I think he went to like seven different auditions or kind of meetings with Peter Mullen and as Peter Mullen said they were kind of like umming and eyeing about him because they weren't sure and they realised that they couldn't have the same actor playing John from the young years through to the kind of early teenage years that you see him in the film so they realised they would have to cast two different actors as young John and slightly older John and when they stumbled upon the actor to play the younger John they realised the similarity that he had to Connor Mm. and effectively I think that's why kind of Connor got the part but he did say that there was a lot of workshopping but the workshopping was always fun and there was no stress it was kind of just easy just playing and I think Peter Mullen seems like a really great kind of director in terms of he's just like just do what you want to do just kind of it it's it's meant to be natural yeah. and it's it's almost like a Ken Lynch type thing as we've seen from Sweet 16 and The Angel Share it's casting natural actors in their natural environment and just letting them get on with it and that's what Peter Mullen has done in this film as as you say the majority of the actors in this film this is their only role yeah. and he is cast proper Scottish schemies and just let them just do what they do. And do do you know what I mean? You know, hopefully I haven't offended anyone by saying schemies, but it's just let them kind of get on with it. And it works so well. It just feels so natural. And genuinely, it does feel like you're watching a Ken Loach film in terms of the performances you're getting from them. Yeah, uh, the guy that plays uh, John, Conor McCarran, he does it so well. But in that interview, he did say... I love the scenes when there's just silence because silence is so much more kind of imposing and gets the message across. And as you say, he doesn't say a huge amount 
in the film, really. Yeah, I mean, go back to what you were saying about the similarities with Ken Loach's work. You know, I, I saw I saw an interview with Peter Mullen um, too, and he was saying how you know the film is set, although although it's not it's not really established in the narrative film. He says the film is set in 1973, so you know he didn't want to like play sort to sort of give sort of smart arse homages to stuff in the 70s but he said you know when he was thinking about the style of the film he was thinking about all the sort of cinematic things that were in the forefront when he was a kid and then in that time so like the scenes where you see the gang kind of walking toward the camera are sort of reminiscent to like a clockwork orange for example um the Mm. scene you know there's a scene where when john you know when after the fight in the school toilets and the knife slides under the cubicle door where john's sort of taking cover if you like then you see him back in his bedroom with the knife and it's it's like a little very sly sort of nod the taxi driver you know he's looking at himself in the mirror with the knife down his in front of his trousers and stuff you know it's exactly what i thought when i saw that scene i was like that's travis yeah that is exactly what he's doing yeah it it completely that comes across so well. But he, he's also, uh, Mullen, he's also trying to evoke a little bit of the style of things like a play for today. Um, no, we, we, we've done a couple of plays mm. for today on the Swally. We've done uh, Down Among the Big Boys and uh, Just a Boys Game. And the sort of, that kind of gritty social realism. Uh, Ken Loach directed quite a lot of um, plays for today. I think his most famous one was uh, Cathy Come Home. And so, you know, he, like, like Mullen says himself, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to try to be smart about it, but the movie, the story originally, he was thinking of it being a sort of um, almost autobiographical story about himself. You know, he sort of famous, well, not maybe not famously, but he's been quite candid about the fact that his own father was quite an abusive drunk, that he, that you know, that Mullen attacked um, when he was old enough, um, that he was a member of a gang. But what he said was, he says, I found when I was writing the script, as soon as I dropped the, the kind of blatant, straight autobiographical elements, and I just kind of focused on the sort of things that I felt at that time you know I said I felt kind of hard done by I felt kind of prejudiced against because of my social situation etc so then the, that's when the drama started to come and you know the sort of characters started to come to life on the page at least um, it's quite an interesting approach and he said quite an interesting quite an interesting thing because he said you know when it comes to autobiographies you kind of you know when you set out you sort of assume that people will find things that happen to you interesting he said but the majority of people might not find it interesting at all you know just because something (laughs) just because something happened to you doesn't necessarily mean that people want to hear about it he said you know just kind of focusing on the feelings and um you know a lot of the situations in neds are close to situations that mullen found himself in in the early 70s as a as a young man and I think that's the kind of the genius part of this film in terms of you have such a young cast and a lot of them are unknowns and they have the the serious kind of weight of the shoulders in the film apart from Wee he is kind of the the comedic yeah. aspect and he does kind of remind me of um uh, t- to speak about kind of Sweet Sixteen and Angel Share again he kind of reminds me of like Sidekick or Arthur yeah. you know a, He's kind of the comic relief. Um, apart from him, the the young actors have a very serious part to play. But it's mostly the adult actors that have the the kind of comedy element. Apart from Peter Mullen's character yeah. as the father, but you have Steve McCall as one of the teachers, and he is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, 
uh, not just Stephen McCall, but then you have uh, David Mackay as the the kind of camp yeah. leader, as a, another comedic aspect. And then, of course, you have Gary Lewis as Mr. Russell. And again, another very funny kind of comedic role. It's almost like the you have those three adult actors taking the comedy aspect in this very serious film. And all the youngsters are having to do the very kind of hard graft of the, the really deep kind yeah. of meaningful role, if, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when the when the comedy comes in this in this movie, it's... Because like, the very beginning of the film, you have uh, young John receiving the class prize, his uh, sister's there from America, getting a photograph with the headmaster and everything. And then John's just like ambushed Sort of, sort of surreptitiously by this kid who comes into it again later, could sort of threatening them. So you, you know, you, you sort of realise quite quickly what kind of film this is going to be, and mm. you know, the the drama. A lot of the drama is incredibly heavy, but so when those light moments come, you know, they I think they're made all the more attractive by the fact that they're that a welcome break from you know what's happening in John's life and the in the the kind of journey that he he finds himself on. You know, I I, I saw Peter Mullen talking about Stephen McCall, and they've obviously worked before together, and he said, you know, I wanted Stephen to. He said, you know, Steve, Stephen came in with an idea of how he he was going to play this teacher. He said, but I, I asked them just to kind of focus on the sort of business of being a teacher. So in, in the first in the first time we see McCall's character, he's doing the class register, you know. He said, so they, that activity of reading the register sort of anchors the performance. And then, you know, I'm sure Steve McCall's recalling his own sort of school days. Because te- teachers... A lot of teachers, I can remember teachers at school when I was really young being a bit like that, you know, just like serious and everybody, you know, sort of quick to anger, if you like, you know what I mean? They saw, you, you kind of knew, you, mm. you, you sort, you sort yeah. of knew the teachers you could maybe be a wee bit sort of cheeky or a bit loose with and you, you knew the teachers that you just don't fuck about in their class. And um, like, to your point, you get, it's, it's a great, you know, he's, he's not in the movie very long, Stephen McCall. I think he's only got about five or ten minutes maximum. But, and, you know, and again, it just speaks to what a good actor he is. He, you almost kind of, you can sort of see that teacher's life. You know, he's teaching the sort of, not the top class, but the second from top class. You know, he's got kids that want out of his class into the top class. He's got, when we, when we see the scene when the two boys from 3A are coming down into his class and they, they look like they're about to walk the fucking plank, those two boys. And he's yeah. like, you know, why is, what, what's, why is, was it he says something like, why does everybody, why does nobody want to be in this class? I'm just as good a teacher as anybody in this school. Take your seats. And stop your crying. Why is it that whenever a boy is sent to this class, he seems to think he's in the beginning of a never ending downward spiral to failure? Now I'm starting to take this personally. I am just as bloody good as any other teacher in this or any other bloody school. You know, you boys don't know you're born. You could have had, like me, an education with the nuns. Now that's very first time we see him, he's given a wee boy the belt, actually, before he does the register, because I don't think we ever find out, I can't remember why the wee boy's getting the belt when John comes in, when John comes through uh, after going into the wrong clash. So... I think, as you say, he's in about 
like three scenes, uh-huh. I think, Steve McCall. And for me, it kind of almost reminds me of Mark Wahlberg in The Departed. Yeah. In terms of, it's a short kind of part, but he steals the film. Yeah, definitely. It's so memorable, but it just leaves this impact in you. And that is, that's exactly what I kind of thought watching this. I mean, Mullen, like, you know, he he obviously selected the, the, the adult cast based mm. on people he'd worked with before. You know, he... Steve McCall's in Orphans yeah. with him. Gary Lewis is in Orphans. He's also in My Name is Joe. You know, Dave Mackay is in My Name is Joe as well. So, you know, they, they, they're obviously... Braveheart. Oh, and Braveheart, beg your pardon. <laughs> they're best buddies in Braveheart. Yeah, so, you know, he obviously has people that he has, that he's, he has good friend, he's good friends with and he likes working with. And equally, they enjoy working with him. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Do I maybe said to Steve McCall, uh, do you want to come in, play this part? It's sort of two days, three days work. You know, I'm sure Steve McCall was like, yeah. And, and you know, went in there thinking, going to give my absolute best performance in this role for my for my buddy here. So in terms of the, the journey that John goes on throughout this film, I mean, he just wants recognition from school and his teachers, but he kind of doesn't get it. But he ends up getting it from his, his friends uh-huh. that he finds in terms of the... Well, the Neds, effectively, that he kind of groups up with. And he gets that recognition and he tries to to get it through other means in terms of, uh, well, his friendship with Julian. Mm -hmm. But that kind of obviously falls by the wayside because of Julian's cunt of a mother. And now, uh, to talk about that scene when he throws fireworks with wraps around the football boots through their, their window, how does John not get done for that? Surely they know who it was that did it. Like they've seen him do it. Yeah. How does he not get something done about that? Maybe they. Uh, I mean, maybe they didn't know his second name and they didn't know where he lived. You know what I mean? Um, mm. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think you know. There's a. There's a. The film is in essence a tragedy. Really, you know, they, we can talk a bit about what the ending might suggest later on. But you know, he's when he's a wee boy. He's obviously studious, uh, you know, because you know, he wants to do well at school. He's intellectual. He's intelligent. Um, you know, like we said before, the first scene we see John, he's, he's winning the class prize and everything. He's he's a bit meek. But even in the early scenes when we see young John, you know, they, they, when when the teacher that he later bumps heads with, the Latin teacher, when he's handing out the, the exam results and John's got 100 out of 100, rather than just say, listen, John, very well done, he sort of singles them out and the praise that he gives them mm. is kind of backhanded it's not you know John's yeah. done really well he's got full marks he's you know he makes them stand on the table um, you know because the rest of the class haven't haven't done very well and you know so that sort of kind of victory for John becomes humiliation so so already the incentive to stand out at school for doing well is starting to kind of deteriorate you know the, he sort of high point for his academic studies is right at the beginning of the film when he gets that prize but that's the theme throughout the film like instantly you know it opens up effectively with you see him getting the prize and he is kind of celebrating it with his his mum and his auntie and they for some reason randomly go off to look at this wedding and that's when Kanta comes up to him and tells him that when he goes to his school next year he's going to kick his fucking cunt in every single day and for john that is obviously torture he has spent that whole summer worrying about going to school because he knows that kanta is going to kick his cunt in but 
thankfully, John's brother is Benny McGill, <laughs> who is basically the local hard nut, and he sets his brother and Fergie yeah. on Kanta. And that's probably one of my favourite parts of the film instantly, you know, the opening of, of when John goes to meet, well, bumps into Fergie yeah. in the shops and, and Fergie delivers a speech about, how do you know, not know, but it's the speech when he's carving Kanta's name into the wall. And it's, it's got too many S's and too many C's. It's, yeah. yeah. It, um, I fucking know how to spell, fuck's sake. There we go, Kanta. Uh, from Hardridge. Get the fuck, that's got fucking S's, nails and fuck knows what in. Do my fucking mo's new kitchen knife in. We'll put down fuck it, Packer, right? P A Who's Packer? is no a hooch, alright? That's the fucking team for Hardridge, right? There we go. Is that me done? Can I go back to doing fuck all now? Instantly I kinda like I really like this guy Fergie. Yeah. He's a he's a good guy, he's looking after John, things are gonna be okay for John. <laughs> and I'd say when when you see uh Fergie and Benny with Kanta outside his window and they've got the bottles wrapped round his neck. Now, have you ever seen that before? Was that a thing? Uh, I've I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, I can like you know. I mean, yeah. I think when it comes to inventive means of hurting each other, I think probably young guys that are in gangs and sort of at war all the time probably have come up with some quite creative ways of inflicting pain and violence on their adversaries. But that's quite a novel one. So for those who haven't seen the film, effectively they have two bottles of I mean, it's two bottles of ginger. It's like two big glass iron brew bottles wrapped on string kind of draped around his neck and they pull them to the side and then kind of swing them so they loop around his neck and then smack him kind of in the chest or in the face yeah it's basically like swing ball but rather they'd be in tethered to a uh. pole in your garden it's tethered to another ball <laughs> which is like wrapped around your neck and they're they're like kind of half filled with liquid, yeah. so it's it's going to be heavy, yeah. so it's going to hurt. You're going to have like a liter of water smacking you in the chest or face, yeah. depending on which way it hits. So it it's going to hurt. And he's obviously taken a beating before that. And but John kind of like shakes his head as they're looking. Like, do you think they were saying, "Do you want us to finish him off?" Like, as in kill him? But he's like, "No, no." I think uh, don't. I don't I no. think, yeah, well, Benny kind of does the old kind of Roman gladiator thumbs up or thumbs down um, and I think uh, mm. I think I don't think that the suggestion is should we murder this boy in your in the back garden I think it's more shall we give him a proper fucking doing um, or shall we just let him go and obviously he's already had a bit of a tanking already when he took when he's when they drag him in so no I, I don't think the suggestion is shall, shall we do them in I don't think these guys even now, I don't think they're necessary. I think it's rare that they're out to kind of kill each other. They're definitely out to hurt each other, like, in extremely. And, you know, but I don't think they ever set out to sort of murder somebody else, apart from in certain cases. Well, that was the, the thing. I think the, the interview you maybe watched, uh, the same as me, with Peter Mullen, and they spoke about the, the violence mm. in terms of the film. And he said it wasn't... I didn't want to glamorise or, or do graphically violent scenes yeah. because there's so many films do that and it's just... It's over the top. It's like, I, I wanted to make this real. Like, 
these kind of fights are short, sharp, and ugly. Mm-hmm. It's that's the way it is, and I think this film does a very good job of that. Like the, the scenes you have that are violent, and I'm thinking about the bridge scene, for example, mm-hmm. which is probably the the kind of main fight. You don't see much happen, yeah. and and that's that's one. I think amazing thing about this film as well in terms of the the two kind of big impactful scenes you have the the fight on the bridge and it's it's kind of so placid in terms of you have the the girls kind of moving aside to let the woman the pram go and then the the, the gangs kind of separate let the gang go and then the fight starts and then you have uh cheek to cheek which obviously was a Fred Astaire kind of song, but this is a a cover by the sensational Alex Harvey band. And the way this song is used in this film is just sensational in terms of the, the graphic nature of the violence. But you have this amazing, happy, uplifting song playing. And cheek to cheek, the main lyrics kind of, you know, I'm in heaven. And that shows what these guys must be feeling yeah. at the time. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, the way that's filmed, you don't, I think you do see the odds kind of projectile kind of bouncing off somebody or, you know, like the kids will throw their pads mm. up to their face as though they're just being hit by like a stone or something. But it's the the actual fight, you know, from a distance, it just looks like a lot of kind of pushing and shoving. Although they kind of run, they mm. run at each other with like their weapons held up, you know, like their knives or, or clubs or whatever they're using. But it's more, it's the aftermath you know, so when when all whenever it's all done and the three boys being, he's had his throat cut and stuff. Even the fight, the fight in the boys' toilet as well n- near the beginning of the film. That's he's filmed that in exactly the same way. And to your point, I mean, I've I've seen a few fights in my life. They've never lasted longer than a few seconds. You know, it's always over very quickly. It's either split up or somebody is hurt. And that you know, the fight in the in the boys' toilets. It's, it's not until the boys are being the, the teachers have come in and the boys are being lined up against the wall by Gary Lewis to be bollocked that one of the kids is like uh, I think I've been stabbed but you don't you know you don't see him be stabbed and the, 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 when the knife comes sliding under the toilet door it's not like covered in blood like it should you know it's obviously you yeah. know so like, to your point you know I think the last thing Peter Mullen would have wanted anybody to do a little bit like Ken Loach's um, kind of mission with um, Sweet 16 last thing you want anybody to do mm. is young impressionable guys to see this and think well that looks like a laugh you know it's like good fun because I mean it fucking it does not <laughs> it's fucking horrendous Exactly as you've said, the two films I could compare this to are Sweet 16. They don't show the kind of graphic violence in that either. The other film I could compare this to that we've also covered on the Swally would be Small Faces. Mm. And they do show a lot more of the graphic violence in that in terms of the stabbings and the bricks in the face and you know when they have the the kind of the rammy in the street you do see a lot more violence in that compared to this and i think that kind of suffers for it compared to this film where i think less is more yeah you you kind of fear more when you you don't see it you're right i mean small faces is it's more of a I don't want to say glamorous. I think it's almost a more romantic kind of look on it. Although there's obviously there's serious consequences for the characters and uh, small faces. Obviously, you know the older brother Bobby losing his life, um, being the most extreme example of that. It does because it's. I mean, it's a period piece as well, and I suppose it's it's set. I think Small Faces was set between 1965 and 1969. I think something like that. So. 
it's not it's not like it's set years and years and years before Ned's. You know, if we say, for example, split the difference and say it was set in 1967, we're only talking six years before Ned's. Yet the fashions are quite different. You know, that mod, that kind of mod look is kind of gone. It's Doc Martens, it's rolled up jeans, it's Fred Perry shirts, um, Crombie jackets, and that sort of thing. It, it did make me think about Small Faces a lot um, as well. Mm. And I, I think Small Faces, like I said, it's more romantic, it's a bit more, more of a, or maybe it's less of a kind of character piece because we're focusing on three brothers in that. Um, um, I don't know. I mean, Lex is kind of the main focus yeah. in Small Faces, and you could say it's kind of John, but yeah, I. I yeah, I would say John is is the sole kind of focus. You got Benny, but what he's in maybe three, four scenes. Yeah. Like there's not much. John is kind of the sole focus of this. Well, film. he's he's the catalyst. Whereas, for... Yeah, you're right. Small faces. Yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say he's he's the catalyst for everything happens around them. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, I would say the most graphic act of violence in this film is kind of tinged with a bit of humour in a way. And it's when he's beating his dad with a frying pan. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's not meant to be funny, no. but it is funny. Like, he's just he's just battering his dad with a frying pan. And you're actually cheering him on because, I mean, obviously, you talk about his dad, played by Peter Mullen, a wonderful character. The absolute tension whenever he is on the screen. In fact, when he's not on the screen, the first time you see him, you don't even see him. He just comes in. You don't see his face. And it's with his auntie there doing the jigsaw of the Statue of Liberty. And he just comes in to go in the drawer. What is he going in that drawer for? Because he goes in there a couple of times. It's a bottle opener. Okay. Um, And you don't see him, but you just feel the tension. Mm -hmm. And every time you kind of see him, everyone just freezes and they're silent. And I can I can completely understand that focus in terms of right, just just be quiet. He'll he'll come in, he'll do his thing, he'll go away. Don't don't annoy him, you know. And then when you Yeah. Yeah. Don't just don't annoy him. Don't speak to him. He'll if we don't bother him, he won't bother us, and he'll he'll go away. And then when you see him standing at the bottom of the stairs, goading his wife, it's horrible. But it doesn't need to be conveyed. You already get the impression this is a nightly thing. Yeah, yeah. This happens all the time. The way that John and his sister react, and that is the genius of Peter Mullen that he puts that across. That you don't need to to hammer it. You immediately know this happens all the time. And it's a wonderful bit of directing, I think. And when it takes to the mother to stand up to him, finally. Yeah. And then the next morning, it cuts to John just fucking smashing his head in with a frying pan. You're not surprised. No, I I mean, it's sort of... There's an element of gratification from that scene. I I don't don't Mm. necessarily agree that it's it's comedic, but there's definitely an element of gratification because he's a he's a bully, obviously the father. It's it's hinted at early on, and then it's and then it's it's right on the nose with the scene you mentioned of him shouting John's mum down the stairs. So you know it's you know it's a bit like um, the story from the welder from Falkirk. You know, seeing a bully get his comeuppance is always kind of gratifying, but it kind of quickly. You know, it's not just a bully getting like a like a sore face and learning a lesson. To your point, you know, John's out to kill him with a frying pan. He's out to like beat his brains in. Ironically, it's the bully's main victim that's that saves him by stopping it um, before it can go even further. Um, you know, watching it and knowing, you know, what Peter Mullen said about his own father, it must have been quite difficult for him. I mean, I've, I've never acted, in my, not not really, in my life. But I imagine that, you know, to, to play a character like that, you have to kind of get into a particular 
frame of mind um, to give the performance and to and I'm sure that he was probably evoking some of his own abusive father's worst qualities you know for somebody that you know you kind of grew up having that relationship with to then play what isn't what may may in essence be a version of that person in a film must have been very difficult for him I think you know um, Hugely. I guess quite cathartic as well, yeah. though, in terms of being able to maybe get it off his chest. But exercise I think. it. And yeah, and, and, and he does get it across very well in terms of the performance. I think he conveys, you know, he's a weak man. Yeah. And when he, he comes to John when he's sober, after John's been huffing glue and has seen yeah. Jesus dance to him, to um, you won't find another fool like me. And he says, go home, your mother's worried. That's when you're seeing the dad sober. And then you kind of think the dad's cleaned up his act. But then when he just turns to John and and has the the compassion to tell his daughter to cover your ears as he just says to John, finish me. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Like, this guy knows that he is a bad one. Uh And But then to put that on your son is oh it's just horrific the the character could just have been um the abusive father and so it started and stopped with it Mm. you know the that you know the scene that you mentioned there about him sending john home and then the other scene um when he asks john to finish him you know again it's it's actually quite a rich character in a way because it's it's clear that this guy is not a happy guy you know he's he's clearly an alcoholic he can't relate to his you know to to, to have sex with his wife he has to verbally abuse her and you know and there's that there's that there's a hint of physical abuse there the way she she obeys him and comes down the stairs he's got no relationship with either of his sons at all he's got a bit of a he seems to have some kind of connection with the daughter and that he doesn't want her to hear what you know what he says to John and whatnot. Um, and again, you know, it's just it's kind of the genius of Peter Mullen. You know, he you know if he wanted, I mean, I, I don't know how Peter Mullen feels about his father now. I'm not sure what happened to his father or if they ever sort of reconciled at any point or whatever. But you know, the the fact that he's taken the sort of concept of that abusive father, something that he lived with his whole life, and then he doesn't justify the behaviour, but he sort of gives reasons of where that. That behavior comes from you know what i mean and what and what is the what is the cause of yeah. that behavior not it's not justified it's inexcusable but this is why you know and he's clearly deeply deeply depressed and unhappy and you can see that with john i mean when he goes full-on baraka from mortal kombat 2 <laughs> and tapes the knives to his arms and goes off topless into the night but then when he comes back to to finish off his dad he can't do it mm. And is that because he doesn't want to end up like his dad or because he he genuinely feels sorry for his dad or I, I don't know it feels like John is you know in that scene when he when he falls when he falls on his dad um it feels like he's just fucking exhausted at that point with everything that has led up to that moment because you know they when he after he's taken the kicking from the rival gang and you know the the his former friends that he's sort of on the outs with kind of come to his rescue and then he sort of turns on them. I mean, I think you know we're sort of reminded of the fact that John is he's a clever intellectual guy with a high IQ probably, well, and you know it yeah. feels like he's just sort of he's just sort of had enough of this gang bullshit. He's had enough of the the rival gang. You know, he's had enough of the gang that he's in. He's had enough of being at odds with his dad. You know what I mean? And he just sort of fucking collapses 
things down and he and he sort of needs he, he this is he's sort, it's like he needs his dad to kind of step up and be a father to him you know that's you know and that, he's sort of thrown himself on his dad's mercy almost and although there's no dialogue in the scene to me the way I saw it he's like look you know I need you now to fucking my, my mother's not enough I need I need you to fucking get me back in the straight and narrow. I mean, there's one point, there's a point in this film that I think they do very well in it, and, you know, you, you remember this from being at high school, but, you know, the, the whole sort of thing about John, he finishes second year, all going well, on the straight and narrow, gets his book token um, for coming top of the class, which was a thing in the 70s. Um, and then he's got the summer holidays, right? So the summer holidays in Scotland have always been around the six week, maybe pushing towards seven week mark. Now I can remember taking yeah. summer holidays and coming back to school. And much like John, kids are very different. Like, I, I don't remember any kids that came back to school like as different as John goes back to school in terms of his objectives and things but just you know like six weeks when you're an adult is no time at all but six weeks when you're a oh. kid and you're um, you take your summer holidays people come back a lot of people would come back different and it might be that they've discovered something over the holiday that they're really into they kind of, I, don't, I think probably the best example is kids coming back to school a bit gothy so you know so they, they go off for the summer break just in what everyone else is wearing and then they come back in September and maybe there's like a Nirvana t-shirt or something like I mean I suppose now they might come back with a bit of nail varnish and stuff when I was at school that wasn't really a thing but they might come back in like a German army shirt you know or a pair of Doc Martens and yeah I'm into all this stuff now you know uh, whereas they went off at the start of the summer maybe listening to the top 40 and you know sort of kind of queuing up for Dario G or something like that and they come back with a big fucking corn t-shirt <laughs> It's a bit longer. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It was kind of the the end of kind of it was like a new beginning. You're yeah. like, oh shit, yeah. So like, okay. This way people would sort of yeah, reinvent think, themselves. Things have moved on. You know, I always came back after the summer. You know, maybe if you want to, there's so you know when you go into the next year up, you feel a bit different. You know what I mean? There's there's more younger kids below you. You're each year you're going sort of further up the sort of hierarchy at school in terms of you know you might especially when you get to sixth year or stuff. But it would be kids that they would go off in June, maybe a wee bit plain. You know, a bit sort of just a kid that you see around the school. You don't know them that well, just like a guy who's in your English class or whatever. And then they come back and suddenly they. Like, girls are interested in them whereas before like they were just another kid in the class they come back maybe they've grown a wee bit maybe they've had their ear pierced maybe they've kind of straightened out or filled out or something in the six weeks it was the same with girls as well you know you'd have girls at school that you didn't really notice that much just because you know you maybe felt that they're a bit plain or whatever and then they would come back after the summer and everybody would be after them you know what I mean they'd be like you know and I can never never understand how in the space of six weeks you can go from a nobody it's like a teenage shagger. Uh, yeah, it just happens. That's uh, that's thing. But um, yeah, John kind of doesn't have that. I mean, in terms of his journey, he just has a bit of a meltdown, but then kind of rectifies himself in the end um, towards yeah. then. I mean, obviously, he he goes through quite a journey in terms of the what he does. And then he has his little Robinson Crusoe moment when he's living at the... In the boiler the room at the flats, um, stealing bread and milk and scud mags from the, the neighbours. I mean, where did he get those scud mags from? Do you think people got them delivered door to door or were they just lying about the boiler room? I think that's probably, was probably solved the mystery of why the Janny started locking the door. <laughs> He's coming in and finding these. <laughs> 
the pages and his uh, jazz mags all stuck together and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, to talk about the ending. So what I take from the ending. Uh, so the end, he's, he's been put into the remedial class. You know, they've agreed to take him back to school. He's, he has suggested that he's turned over a new leaf for reasons, and I'm sure that's probably highly likely that this would happen, despite his previous um, clear intelligence. He's put into the remedial class with the special needs kids and Wee T, who has just sort of accidentally, who's at the wrong school. <laughs> Just wandered into the wrong classroom, which just made me piss, which always makes me laugh. Um, and they're they're taken out on a school trip to, I guess it's supposed to be the the old Glasgow Zoo, which is now shut down. And the van breaks down, and John's left with Canter, who he has, who previously in the film he's dropped a slab on the boy's head after knocking him out. Essentially, Canter's brain damaged, um, and is in this. He's in the remedial class because because of his brain damage. And John sort of leads him through the lions. To to what I can only assume is safety. So I was thinking, you know, does that suggest the fact that John has has successfully negotiated the literal lions in the at the safari park or at the zoo? Does that mean that it's going to be all right for him? You know, it's a sort of metaphor for the fact that the whole movie is he has he's sort of he's he's been with the lions, if you like, for the movie when he's gone with the gangs and the fighting and the violence and the huffing glue out of a golden wonder crisp bag and stabbing Jesus. You know, is that is that like a little metaphor for the fact that? Maybe John's going to be all right in the future. I took it as he has caused Cantor's head injury and trauma. As you say, he's, he's kind of punched him out and then chuck a, a paving slab on his head to, yeah. to give him massive brain damage and lead to him being a, a um, having learning difficulties. Um, I think it speaks a lot that it, it's the two of them that are left on the bus in the end. And Cantor is trying to grab john's hand and hold his hand and and john is being kind of the fuck off fuck off like swatting him away and then in the end he gives in and holds his hand and they walk off into the distance and they literally walk into the lion's den and you have what six seven lions there and it's just such a calm serene ending and i I almost think it's in a way of john kind of being like right if we survive this we get a second chance Canter's got nothing to live for because he's a vegetable. Um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of fucked as well. So let's try this as a test. If we get through this and the lions think we're okay, we're all right. And the lions don't see them as any threat. And take that as you will, because obviously Canter's no threat to anyone because he's obviously severely brain damaged. And it's almost like John's passed the test because it's like, okay, you're no threat. You're you're a good guy. You're a good guy. The lions are thinking you're okay. And, you know, one of the, the female lions comes, you know, behind him and follows him a little bit and then stops at the side. And it's like, okay, he's no threat. And I like to think that, that they kind of walk off together. They go and find safety and everything's going to mm-hmm. be okay. They they kind of find solace and but I like to think John does something with his life after this kind of it it's a it's a new beginning so to speak. And I think he realizes that he's no threat. It, he's a good guy and you know go on and do something. Did you did you see uh, the blistering cameo from Take the High Road Zone Gary Hollywood as a uniform Oh, I did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was a a wonderful 
little piece. I did notice that, yes. Chewing the, chewing the scenery. Um, okay, shall we put Ned's through our Swally Awards? Yeah, why not? Let's put it through the awards. Okay, what have we got first? I've, my first award is the Ewan McGregor Award for Gratuitous Nudity. So the only one that I had really, and I put a question mark beside it, was Jesus. It's not really gratuitous, but everyone everyone else keeps their clothes on. Um, I had the Scud book that John is reading in the boiler room because you do see some tits and a fanny in that. <laughs> Obviously, I paid a, a lot closer attention to the Scud book that he was reading. It was a copy of Mayfair, but you do see some uh, bush and some boobies in that Scud book. But yeah, Jesus would count as well. But does Jesus beat a bush? I don't know. Crown of does Thorns. Jesus, uh, does Jesus beat a bush? Does he beat a burning bush? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, the... James Cosmo Award for being an everything Scottish. There's a couple of options here, I would say. Yeah, I've got three options here. Um, what did you go for? Initially, I had put Cullen, but when I came back to it, I thought, well, you got uh, Gary Lewis in there, who is just phenomenal. I mean, I, I, forget how good at comedy Gary Lewis is. I mean, even when he plays Thomas in Orphans, although Thomas is ultimately quite a tragic character, there's still some big, really, really funny moments from Gary Lewis in that scene when John turns up late and you know, my word sir you look tired <laughs> you know it's just absolutely hilarious you look exhausted sir so tired perhaps I could help you stand up here I said son I'll give you a call, Carrie. Come on. What class are you in? Three. I'll get you there. On you get. My goodness. You're heavy, young sir. Can I ask? Um, so, Gary Lewis in that scene, and then obviously you have him again in the scene in the, the toilet where the guy's been yeah. stabbed, yeah? So, uh-huh. Gary Lewis is the headmaster of that school because he has the cloak on and stuff, yeah? Surely. That is the suggestion because, you know, well, but then maybe he's the new headmaster because John goes to see the headmaster when he first starts the school and he thinks he's in the wrong class. <laughs> I love that scene, the headmaster. The headmaster comes out of the toilet with a fag hanging out his mouth and washes his hands. So he's been for a piss with a fag in his mouth. He comes uh, out of the toilet, washes his hands with a fag still in his mouth. That really is that funny. the same headmaster as at the end as well? Well, we, 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 because don't, we don't see him, when, do we? No, but when his auntie and mum go to see the headmaster to get John back into school and the headmaster walks him to the remedial class. That's right. And he walks him past one of... Is that the same headmaster as the start? Because it's not Gary Lewis. It's not Gary Lewis. I think it might be. So maybe Gary Lewis is like the deputy head. Oh, okay. I'd need to go back and check if it's the same headmaster from the start to the end. Because Uh one of my notes was, why is Gary Lewis no longer the headmaster? Mm. Um, But maybe it is the... Same as the the very first one that, as you say, is still smoking a fag and washing his hands. But <laughs> yeah. I need to check that. <laughs> um, yeah, so Gary Lewis, but then Dave Mackay has got he's in quite a lot of Scottish mm. stuff. 
And then, you know, a recent possible Swally fan, Stephen McCall, who's liked more than one of our... Um, he liked our Dog Soldiers post on Thursday as well, advertising the Dog Soldiers uh, podcast. I had... Gary Lewis was my main yeah. award winner for the Cosmo Award, but I did have Stephen McCall in brackets because... Mm. Steve McCall has been in a lot of Scottish things. And to be fair, this performance will put him number two clear out in the Swally Tally. He is, it, it's him and uh, Alex Norton like yeah. competing for the top spot. And Steve McCall is just in so many Scottish things. And I've never seen him deliver a bad performance. Everything he's in, he's so good. Like even this, he's in three scenes and genuinely, like I say, I compare him to Mark Wahlberg in The Departed. He steals the scenes in the show and he's so good. However, in terms of being in everything Scottish, when you look at their IMDb list and you look at all of the Scottish things, yeah, it's Gary Lewis. I mean, if if Stephen is a, a recent fan of culture as well, and if you're listening, Stephen, maybe you could tell us why you decided to go sort of gingerish for this role. So I'm pretty sure that's not his natural colour. Just interested to know on what the on what the what drove the choice. That's all. Not a big deal. Um, okay. The Jake McQuillan Yartizut Award. So for this one, I I didn't want, you know, initially I thought I was going to go for um, John Punch and Canter. And if it had just finished with John Punch and Canter, then maybe he would, I would have done that. But because of what happens next. So instead, I went with uh, Benny punching the rival gang leader after inviting them to a square go, telling him to put down his tool. And as he goes to put it down, Benny like absolutely thumps him before giving him a couple of kicks and sort of stepping back. So that, that seemed to sit nicely in the Jake McQuillan vein of uh, random acts of violence. You know something? I did put John smacking Canter <laughs> and then smacking a paving stone on his head. But uh, the way you have spoken so eloquently about Benny smacking the rival gang guy, I, I'm going to give it to that. Yeah, that is, you're right. That is a very much a kind of Jake McQuillan award. That is, it, it, yeah, that, yeah. Definitely. It might be the most Jake McQuillan-y example of the Jake McQuillan Award we've had <laughs> since uh, it's just a boys yeah. game. Now, Jake McQuillan would be proud of that. He would. Now, for the for the Francis Begbie Award for swearing, the tempt. I mean, the, the the whole film, the swearing is quite gratuitous. So I've <laughs> I've just selected two of my favourites. Um, my first one is uh, Fergie. Can I can I go back to doing fuck all now? I like that. And Wee T at the end of the film to the park ranger. Well, no touch your fucking lions. I think might be the funniest line in the whole film. What do you think you're doing? Get back in the van. There's lions around here. Calm down. Don't go fucking touch your lions. <laughs> I I gave it to Fergie's whole speech when he's carving yeah. the, the canter and he's like it's got fucking S's and C's in it. the whole speech for me is just littered with swearing and it's just hilarious his, his regard for his mum's new kitchen knife is quite heartwarming isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another line in the film which which has no swearing in it, which did make me laugh. Uh, your maws had mere bell ends than weekends, you know. I know that like some guys when I was at school, the the art of slagging off uh, 
a friend or enemy's mother. Some guys got it down to a fine art. I'm not sure anybody topped that one. Well, not that I condone slagging off your friend. <laughs> it, was, it was a different time. Um, archetypal Scottish moment. I gave it to one of two. It was either David Mackay's speech when he's speaking to them going around the group and he does say to the the two guys that don't have any illnesses oh well they keep eating your porridge the kind of the human race depends on you <laughs> yeah. I, I mean porridge is obviously such a scottish thing either that or i think i might give it to wee tea and his grandmother hiding his shoes in the biscuit cupboard and he's still picking caramel logs out of his sock <laughs> I I had uh, yeah they're both brilliant. I had um, the Provi check, but I think a Provi I think the Provi check might be maybe particular to Glasgow. I don't know like did kids get Provi checks in Aberdeen? Yeah, my uncles used to get Provi checks in Aberdeen, so <laughs> that was the third one on my list was the Provi check. Um, but I wasn't sure if it was a, an Aberdeen thing. <laughs> So I wasn't sure whether I put that as a Scottish moment, but maybe yeah, that could win. I like um, I like uh, John. Obviously, we you know when he his brief friendship with a kind of more middle upper middle class kid, Julian. When he when he's having to dis- describe to Julian what a provi check is, he says, "Oh, my, my, he says, my my, <laughs> my, 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 says if I get a paper round, I can get a provi check, uh, and I can pay it back at a pound a week." <laughs> And he's, what's it? he says, well, you can you can get up to a hundred pounds. I'm going to get twenty five fucking pounds, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that. One. Um, the Sean Connery Award for who won the movie? I think it's an open and shut case, really. Don't you? Or, or, or Why? I mean, I well, think, who are you going with? I mean, I, I have to give it to Conor McCarran. You know, just we, just, we, we talked about him mm. at the beginning. The fact he's very little acting experience um, and is essentially carrying the whole film. You know, he's got a lot of scenes with Peter Mullen. Um, I don't think he doesn't have any scenes with Stephen McCall. He has two scenes with uh, Gary Lewis and a number of scenes with Peter Mullen, plus the other um, less well-known um, adult actors that are in the film. And he, uh, you know, more than holds his own. Um, and it's just... It's, uh, he it reminds me a little bit of um, even he even looks a wee bit like Ray Winston in Scum, you know, like a young Ray Winston, you know, the sort of red hair, the stocky build yeah. and stuff. You know, there's a resemblance, You're right? Yeah. yeah. So that he was does my... actually. Now you mention it, yeah, yeah. I had Conor McCarran. Mm. Um, that my alternate was Peter Mullen, purely yeah. because obviously he he written, he directed the film, yeah. and although he's not in it a lot. His performance is incredible in yeah. terms of that. He is uh, someone you just want to absolutely despise and hate, but then all of a sudden, in a, a flip, you feel really sorry for him and yeah. kind of feel empathetic. And what? He's probably got maybe six, seven lines in the whole film. Most yeah. of them are fat bitch, fat slag. Yeah, slack Alice. Yeah. To deliver that kind of performance and to deliver so little lines, but yet to have a character you kind of hate so much, but then feel so sorry for, is it, it's incredible. It, I would say we'd give it to Conor McCarran because he does deliver an incredible performance in this film. And yeah, I mean, without him, he's he's literally, once you get past the next stage... He's in every scene. And I think that's what Peter Mullen said in the, the interview we watched, that it was so important to cast the right actor because he's literally in every single scene. Yeah, yeah, really good. Brilliant. No, I enjoyed uh, going back to Ned's. Um, yeah. So, uh, is your turn to choose content for next time? I'm kind of cheating a little bit this week. Uh, not really, but um, kind of. Um, 
I'm kind of inspired by one of our listeners who um, is everyone's favourite Canadian baker, Strong (laughs) Henry. Uh, So I I know we had spoken to him. I think you'd spoken to him, Greg, on Instagram. And he'd mentioned that he was a big fan of Ian Banks. And I think we possibly think he's maybe a a fan of Ian Banks' kind of sci-fi uh, kind of work, maybe more than his, his yeah. literary work. And uh, there's literally only three pieces of Ian Banks's work that have been made into films or TV shows. And we've already covered one, which mm-hmm. was Complicity. And I was very, very sick this last week, uh, as we've discussed earlier. So whilst I was in bed sick, I actually reread one of Ian Banks's books that I haven't read since I was 14. And I, I haven't seen this adaptation of it since it came out so uh next time with the swally i would like to look at uh the 1996 adaptation of the crow road excellent uh five episodes or four four episodes four it's been a while since i've done a tv show so uh yeah it has been um it it, i was gonna pick a tv show otherwise but uh yeah i thought you know what let's do the crow road probably because i read it last week um and it's fresh in my mind. But I, I have... Have you ever read the book? Yes, I read the book. We'll yeah. cover that next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've read um, the book. Um, okay, brilliant. Okay. Uh, right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, and if you've uh, if you've seen anything in the news you'd like us to review or if you have anything uh, you would like us to actually review on the podcast then you can email us on cultureswally at gmail.com or why don't you follow us on Instagram at cultureswallypod or you can follow us on Twitter at swallypod and hey why don't you leave us a nice little review rate and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts because it really does help the podcast grow and Greg we have a website, don't we? We have a website. Uh, yep, you can you can find us at cultureswallyblog.com. There's links to all the episodes and links to some of our favourite news stories that we've covered uh, in the last how many months now? 16 months? 17 months? I'm not sure. When did we start? May 2020? 2020? So, uh, no, not, not to let light in upon magic, but we started recording in May, but we started releasing episodes in the 1st oh, of September. Okay. Right. Um, well, anyway, you can find links to some of our favourite stories there, plus uh, the updated Swally Tally and uh, various other bits and bobs. You can also contact us through the Fantastic. website. Fantastic. Okay, right. All right, then. Until next time. Until next time, Greg.